All right. Well, good to see you guys. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Hope that you are uh, doing well. Hope that you had a good week. We are continuing our study in eschatology, the study of the eschaton, the last things or the end times. And uh, today, we're going to be talking about when will Christ return. As we all know, the answer to that is Tuesday, June 5th. 2045 or something. Not, not like that. Not specifically like the date. The Bible's very clear that you can't know that. But uh, we are supposed to know something about the timing of uh, Christ's return. And so that's what we're going to be uh, talking about today. Uh, just as a little teaser, we've still got some fun topics coming up in theological equipping. We've got things such as hell, everybody's favorite topic. We've got new heavens and new earth. What will the eternal state be like? We've got three lessons in a row on the millennium. You might have heard phrases thrown around by theological nerds, phrases such as premillennial and postmillennial and amillennial and dispensational premillennial and uh, you know, pre and post-tribulation, all these kind of things. Maybe those are weird terms for you. Maybe you love that topic. Maybe you hate it, but we will, uh, uh, we will beat that topic into submission as we uh, address it three weeks in a row. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, Jared Lawson's preaching today. That'll be fun. That'll be good. Y'all pay attention because he'll be uh, some of y'all's pastor one day if you go off as a church plant, if you go off as a church plant. Uh, So, okay, let's talk a little bit about when will Christ return, and then next week we're going to talk about uh, what the second coming will be like. So today we're going to talk some about timing, and then next week what the second coming will be like. Let me give you a few uh, introductory quotes and such on this topic. This one comes from the Parkway Church's Statement of Faith, okay? So here's our official stance on these things. Uh, It's not going to answer all the questions, but it gets the big ones. The consummation of all things includes the future, physical, visible, personal, and glorious return of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of the dead, the translation of those alive in Christ, the judgment of the just and the unjust, and the fulfillment of Christ's kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth, okay? So uh, you'll notice in there we don't have something specifically on the timing, Uh, And there are other questions we leave unanswered there, but that's intentional. What we want to do as a church is take an official stand on the most important things. Jesus is actually coming back, really, not just through the presence of his church, that he is uh, going to put all things to rights. He is going to condemn forever those who are lost and uh, vindicate forever those who uh, know him. The Apostles' Creed says this, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come. Some versions say from whence he will come, which I like as it's a little more ye olde Englishy. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And then uh, Wayne Grudem's definition, which is a pretty good definition, the return of Christ is a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ to the earth at an undisclosed time in the future. Now, most definitions and most theology textbooks will deal more with what the second coming will be like than the timing of it. So our hope in this lesson is to talk some about when Christ will return. Not so that you put out, that you rent out a billboard and put the date up on the highway and then gather in some strange commune, but rather so we might be faithful. We might be faithful in the meantime. So let me give you a few passages. Here's my first point in this lecture. Point number one, perhaps the most important point in this lecture. We do not know the date of Christ's return. Amen? How do you know, Zach? Because this isn't something that the Bible kind of says one time in an obscure passage. There are those obscure passages. Rather, it says this over and over and over again, okay? So let me read you a few passages. Matthew 24, 44. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Notice, it's when you don't expect it. So I remember being a kid when uh, we went from 1999 
to the year 2000. Some of you are like, you were a kid then? I was an adult. Yes, yes, I'm probably younger than you if that's you. Others of you are thinking, I was not alive yet. I'm older than you. So there you go. I'm somewhere between those two age groups. And uh, I remember being a kid, and it was uh, 1999, and everyone was freaking out about Y2K. There was this idea that though computers can send people to the moon, they can't add a zero, right? And so the fear was that this is gonna be the year. Some even thought this is gonna be the year that Christ returns. How do we know that that's not the year that Christ returns? Because he says I'm coming when you don't expect it, okay? What happens is anytime things get really big or people go to war or there's some major thing going on, we think this is probably when Christ is gonna return. He specifically says it's when you don't expect it, okay? So if you're thinking, man, I really expect it, that's probably not when it's gonna happen. Now, you can't try to logic chop God and be like, well, I'm just going to expect him to come every day so he can never come, all right? The idea is that it's on the whole, on the whole, okay? Matthew 24, 50. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, okay? That'd be enough if the Bible just said it once, but there it is twice, but here it is again. Matthew 25, 13. Watch therefore, for you do not, I'm sorry, for you know neither the day nor the hour, Okay? Mark 13, 32 through 33, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. That's talking about Christ and his humanity, by the way. The church has unanimously affirmed that Jesus in his deity knows the same thing as the Father because they are one substance. But that's what it's talking about in his humanity. But only the Father, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 4. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, okay? What is that, a, what is that an, a, an image of? Someone breaking into your house when you're sleeping and not aware. Now, I don't do that. I don't sleep. I just sit on my couch with an AR and just make sure nobody breaks in. But for everybody else, criminals just break in when you don't expect it, okay? While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now, there's something really interesting in that passage we just read. It just said that Christ will come when everybody is saying, there's peace. Notice that there are some passages in the Bible where it'll say, the end is near because you see all these things happening. But there are other places in the Bible that say, you don't expect it, it's not gonna happen when you think it's gonna happen, and it's gonna happen when everything's great and everything's peaceful. Let that throw a wrench into your theological system. Nobody ever says that. Nobody ever says, we haven't gone to war in a while and the economy's doing great. I bet Christ is gonna come back tomorrow, right? So uh, keep that in mind. Revelation 3.3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. There's a strong affirmation of monotheism. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Notice, one of the things that makes God unique. So this text says there's only one God, okay? There's only ever been one God and no one is like him and then what uh, attribute of God does it go on to qualify that with? The fact that he and he alone knows the future, okay? That is something that God knows. God is the one who has ordained the future. And so this text is trying to say there's something that God has that we don't have, which is this ability to know with certainty what's going to happen. And, uh, and so notice that we are not gonna be able to predict this date, okay? This is something that God knows. Of course, God ordains all things, but we uh, as limited, fallible humans do not know. So 
With that in mind, let me give you some clarifications on this idea. This one's fun, because I get to make fun of stuff. And as you know, here at Parkway, that's kind of our love language. If we ever step on your toes, we're not stepping on your toes personally. We might not even know who you are. Rather, we're stepping on the toes of what we think to be a wrong position, hoping that we can make you laugh so you don't hate us, so you get coffee and we can chat, okay? That's what we're doing. Uh, Let me give you some clarifications on this idea. Number one, the Bible nowhere gives us even a hint regarding the date of the second coming. The Bible nowhere gives us even a hint of the date regarding the second coming. If you say there's some sense in which Christ came in destruction in 70 AD, that's as close as you can get depending on your bigger theological system, but the Bible nowhere gives us even a hint regarding the date of the actual final second coming, okay? Number two, I like this one. The Bible is not to be treated as a strange book of secret codes whereby you can calculate the date of Christ's return. God has written his word to, quote, make wise the simple, okay? It's so that we can actually understand it so we know what he wants us to do and believe. Uh, It's not, if God is trying to communicate information and he makes it all in these weird secret codes, he's failing to communicate that information. Uh, What happens for these people that consider themselves to be end times experts is they take a Bible and they're like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna count every third letter and see what message I get, right? They pick like an English Bible of just whatever version they want, And they assume that's how they're gonna count the letters and get the code that God wants them to have or something like that. You're not to treat the Bible that way. The Bible's not this weird secret book of codes. Uh, Rather, it says what you're supposed to know explicitly, okay? God is trying to get his message to you. He's not trying to hide it for everybody except Harold Camping, okay? Number three, when the text says we do not know the day or the hour, that does not mean you can know the week, month, or year, okay? I've heard people reason that way. Well, it says we can't know the day or the hour, but we can know that it's gonna be the first week in a September. You're like, what? No. The whole point is to say you can't know, not to say you can't know day or hour, but minute and second, you've got it. It's gonna be on a half hour sometime in June, something like that, okay? That's not not to be... uh, uh, the way we approach the, the Bible. The whole idea is it's, that's, that's not how we do logic. These texts are trying to say you can't know. They're not trying to have you ignore all of that to find a little bit of things that you can know, okay? It's trying to fight that idea. I love this next one. I love it. It's close to my heart. Tweet it out. Get it crocheted on a pillow. I love this one. 100%, that's a pretty good percentage. Everyone, 100% of people who've predicted the date of the end of the world have been wrong, Okay? Logically, that doesn't mean then that you couldn't. It just means your chance of being right is very, very, very low. Everybody that has been certain and they sell all their stocks and they uh, you know, do all this weird kind of teaching and stuff, 100% of the people have been wrong. Who, thought, who in church history has thought that they lived in the end times? Everybody, right? Everybody thought that. Luther thought the day was in his day. The early church thought it was in their day. Uh, Jonathan Edwards thought it was in his day. Everybody thinks this is the generation. This is the generation. I'm gonna ignore the 2,000 years that have gone by, but this is the generation that's gonna happen, right? Number five, people who try to predict the date of the end of the world always forget that we in the West are a day behind the other half of the globe. When it's June 2nd in China, it's only June 1st in Texas. Okay, don't forget that. Do you, so, so today, today is September the 15th, okay? Do you know what day it is right now in New Zealand? It's the 16th, okay? It's actually 2 a.m. because it's 9 a.m. here. It's 2 a.m. in New Zealand on September the 16th. 
People that try to predict the date of the end of the world always forget that we live on a sphere, okay? And if you call your buddy in China right now and say, look outside, they will not say it's sunny just because it's sunny to you. They will say, it's dark outside, okay? And so what happens is the, the, the world is never under the same date. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, um, if this were the case that you could predict the date of the end of the world, what I would do is I would wait till we got close to that date then I would fly backwards to New Zealand and just skip that day altogether and avoid the second coming. You see? That's how I would do it. That's how I would do it. So people have a tendency when they do this to be very, what's a good way to say it? Very Western-centric. So when people say, Zach, things are getting worse, don't you think the world's getting worse? I say, you mean in America? Or do you mean in Africa where Christianity is expanding pretty rapidly? You see, we always have a tendency to do it from our perspective. So we always have a tendency to think, oh, because it's the date where I live, that's when Christ comes back. Or I've seen people one time, it was like really stormy and the clouds looked kind of red and they were like, I wonder if Christ is coming back. And I thought, do you think it's stormy over in Russia right now? Jesus is just coming back here to Texas? Is where he, he didn't come back to Jerusalem or something more important. He just comes back to, you know, McKinney or something. Don't get me wrong. I like McKinney. It's basically heaven on earth. But, uh, but I don't think that's, uh, that's the idea, Okay. And then number six, why does God not give us a more specific time of Christ's return? Here's the, here's the why. Here's the big reason, I think. If you knew the date Christ was coming back, you would act strange and panicky instead of doing what God wants you to do, which is to act normal slash faithful. Notice that I put those together. There's strange and panicky end times people, and then there's normal faithful end times people. And everybody fits into one of those two categories. Here's what I mean by that. If you knew with certainty that Christ was coming back Tuesday of this week. Would you go to work Tuesday? No. Surely you wouldn't do that, okay? Would you uh, withdraw all of your money and probably uh, go on a real nice vacation for the next few days? You might. Uh, If you knew when Christ was coming back with certainty, you'd withdraw all your money, go get in a cave with a bunch of other Christians, stockpile ammunition and canned beans, and that's not what Christ wants to see you doing when he comes back. He wants you to be faithful. You know what Christ wants you doing when he comes back? Being faithful at work, being a faithful mom, shepherding your kids, working on schoolwork if you're a college student, uh, loving your neighbor and caring for the poor, preaching the gospel, repenting of sin, reading the Bible, enjoying God's good gift, going for a walk, having a, a, you know, a steak with your, uh, with your spouse, whatever it might be. God doesn't want to give you the date so that he comes back and you know when the master's coming. He wants to come at a time when you don't know that he's coming and he wants to find you faithful. So if you use the example of the slave that's put over this household, the whole idea is that the master's coming to the house when the slave doesn't know so he can come and see whether the slave's being faithful. If the slave instead said, you know what I'm gonna do? I know my master's coming back on this day and I don't want any bad thing to happen so I'm gonna run away or I'm gonna hide in the basement or I'm gonna do these kind of things. That's not what God wants you to do. So God doesn't wanna give you the date because he wants to find you faithful. Okay? There's a quote that's attributed to Martin Luther that he didn't actually say, but it's a great quote. Okay? So I'm going to say this is not from Luther. This is anonymous. And it's, if I knew that the world was ending tomorrow, today I would still plant my apple tree. The idea is that you're to be faithful. You're just to do what God has called you to do. There are those who will be starting a PhD program and Christ will come back before they get a chance to turn in their dissertation. That's not wasted work because they're not doing their work for the dissertation. They're doing their work to be faithful to God, to steward their mind and to know truth, okay? That's what God wants to find us doing. Whatever our job is, whatever our family situation is, he wants to find us faithful, not uh, weird and uh, end timesy. Okay, next. 
We're gonna look at some passages that seem to be in conflict with one another, but they're not in conflict. We've talked about this. The Bible does not contradict itself. What the Bible does a lot of times is it gives you two sides to things and puts the emphasis on different points. So there's not an actual contradiction where there are supposed contradictions. Our job as good theologians is to harmonize what the Bible says because God's word is perfect. And so I wanna show you some passages that seem to say that Christ is coming back soon and then some passages that seem to say Christ is not coming back soon. You ever wondered that? You ever thought to yourself, okay, this passage says I need to be ready. Jesus can come back at any time. But this passage says before Jesus can come back, the stars have to fall out of the sky and there has to be this big antichrist figure. What do I do with that? Maybe you've never thought about that before. So let's look at some of these passages just to freak you out. Hebrews 10.37. For yet a little while. Now that doesn't sound like a long time. A little while? If I said I'm coming over your house in a little while and then I showed up 2,000 years later, would that surprise you? For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. That seems to be pretty fast. <clears throat> Revelation 22, 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Whatever coming soon means, it has to mean soon to the original audience. Somehow in Revelation, he's saying, I'm coming soon. Be ready. The, the second coming is right on top of you. It's just about here. Okay? Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Matthew 24, 48 through 51. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, notice that this is a rebuke of someone who thinks Christ is not coming back soon, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll talk about that with our hell lesson. That will be a lot of fun. I won't tell you when we're doing that one, so you just show up. So you just show up. But if you're a Christian, there's no hell for you, so take heart. Notice that uh, the, uh, the slave is rebuked for thinking that the master is delayed here. Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Notice that Jesus in his deity knows he's coming soon. He knows when he's coming. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Mark 13, 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. We'll talk about that later if you want to. So there are all these passages. These are just some. I could put more here. There's obviously a lot of parallels between the synoptic gospels on these uh, same accounts. But the Bible is going to say that Jesus is coming soon. If you think he's delaying, you think he's not coming soon, you're wrong. Period. Some passages that seem to say Christ is not coming back soon. Okay? Regarding the parable of the talents, everybody knows this uh, parable of the talents. There's actually a joke about the parable of the talents, and it's this, that, uh, that God is a capitalist because he doesn't treat everyone the same. He gives some people 10 talents, some people five talents, and he doesn't require that everybody have the same amount at the end, but rather they be faithful with the talents they've been given. That's, uh, that's a side economics talk. We'll deal with that later. Regarding the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, 19. Now, after a long time, wait a second. Is he coming in a little while or a long time? If I say I'm coming to your house after a long time and I instantly show up at a time you do not expect, you see that makes you unhappy, okay? Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. Luke 19, 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They think the kingdom of God is coming immediately and Jesus has to slow their roll a little bit. Okay? Well, actually, there are these other things that have to happen first. Okay? 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4, and then 8 through 9. Let's look at this. 
Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will, scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing. Okay, I like that. That's what scoffers do. They scoff. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What Peter is saying here is that there are mockers, even in the first century, that are saying it's taken too long. They've only had to wait a few years. And they're saying, if this Jesus was really coming back, like he kept saying he was coming back soon, he'd be here by now. And what Peter has to say is, no, 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 no. The reason that Christ is delayed in coming is not because God is unfaithful. It's because God is merciful. It's because God is merciful. Providence aside, had, God, had Christ come back before you were converted and repented, you would have gone to hell. Providence aside. He wouldn't do that. Well, he would have figured out whatever. Had he come back before you had actually trusted in Christ, in actuality, then it would have shown you were actually reprobate and you would have gone to hell. God is patient with us, which is why he delays so that more and more and more can be saved. Jesus' delay in this coming is not because he's unfaithful, but because he's merciful, but because he is merciful. And then not to mention the historical fact that it has been 2,000 years since Christ was raised, okay? This proves that he did not come back, quote, soon, at least not from the perspective of a first century audience, okay? <clears throat> Let me say something, because I hear people misquote this uh, two, a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years. What Peter is trying to say is God doesn't do time the way you do time, okay? God's just always existed, and then God creates space and time as he creates the universe, okay? God doesn't do time the way that we as humans do time, okay? That's his point. It's not that you take every single passage in the Bible where there's a day and interpret it as a thousand years or a thousand years is a day. Jesus did not spend 3,000 years in the grave, okay? He spent three days in the grave. I only say this because when we get to Genesis, what people will say is, well, by the word day here, though it says there was evening and there was morning the first day, that must mean millions and millions of years because a day with the Lord is a thousand years. You don't get to transpose those things. Genesis is written so that we would understand it as humans, and so uh, it's using, in a sense, human time. Okay. Does that stress, are you stressed out yet? Christ could come back soon, but he's also not gonna come back soon. Everybody good so far? Okay. I need to say something that I think is uh, really important. Let me see if it's in my notes before I steal my own thunder. Oh yeah, no, it's there later. Never mind, forget it, nothing's coming. <laughs> Nothing helpful's coming. Look at the things that the Bible says must happen before Christ can come back, okay? Before Christ can come back. Number one, the gospel must be preached to all nations. Mark 13, 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. That's where I got that point. And you're like, oh man, that was a great point. That's where I got it, from the Bible, okay? Number two, a great tribulation must occur. Mark 13, seven through eight. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains, Okay. Mark 13, 19 through 20. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Okay? There's some type of tribulation that has to happen. Are we always going through it? Is it the church age? Is it a big last devil's hurrah at the end of time? Uh, we, uh, we address that elsewhere. Number three. False Christs 
and false prophets must work signs and wonders. How about that one? Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. Can someone who doesn't know Christ do some sort of demonic miracle and deceive people? Yes. The way you know whether or not someone's a Christian is not by their magic powers. It's not by their charismatic giftings. It's by whether or not they hold true doctrine and they walk in holiness. That's how you know whether or not somebody is a Christian. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You can't actually lead the elect astray because God preserves them, but uh, he's using a hyperbole here. Their, their deceptions will be so powerful that the elect almost fall into them. That's the idea, okay? Number four, Signs, well, well let, me, let me tell uh, just a brief little story about this last thing. So we know of false prophets, people that come and they proclaim false things. Uh, I got a chance to take a mission trip one time to Israel and there was a guy coming up passing out these little tracks. He was an Orthodox Jewish guy. He's got the, the curls. And, uh, and he was coming up passing up these tracks and he's like, we found the Messiah. And I'm like, finally, who do you think he is? And he's like, it's this guy. And he showed me this picture of this guy born in like the 1900s. And I said, uh, where does the Messiah come from according to the Bible? And he said, Bethlehem. I'm like, that's right, Bethlehem. That's what, house of bread is what that means in Hebrew. Yes, Bethlehem, you got it. Where was this guy born? And he said, New York City. And I said, ugh, so close, right? <laughs> so close. He was pushing a false Christ. And he had videos of this guy turning water into wine doing these magic tricks of whatever, kind of like Jonas and Jambres, and uh, he was showing uh, these, this video of these supposed miracles this guy was doing, and a lot of Jews thought this guy was the Messiah, okay? So there will be false Christ in addition to, uh, in addition to false prophets as well. Number four, signs will occur in the heavens. Mark 13, 24 through 26. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So basically every springtime in Texas. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Okay? Some sort of uh, cosmological signs in the heavens. Number five, a man of lawlessness will come and encourage rebellion. A man of lawlessness will come and encourage rebellion. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 10. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, which I guess is like the rap uh, thing that people do. They do spoken word poetry. Or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, which is a title for this exceptionally evil figure, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Notice that this person is not just against Christianity, he's against everything that you would worship, okay? That's interesting to me. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the what? The truth and so be saved. The reason we're so big on truth the reason we try to push accurate biblical knowledge here at Parkway is not just to be some sort of Bible nerd. 
It's to, as Jeff Ashley said in his lesson last week, which I thought was excellent, we protect ourselves not by hoarding gold, but by hoarding doctrine. We protect ourselves by loving the truth. To not love the truth is to hold false doctrine and not to be pleasing to God, okay? Number six, many ethnic Jews will repent and trust in Jesus. Okay, now I put this one here. I, in my own mind, there's an asterisk by that because I'm not sure exactly what I do with uh, Romans 11, but this is an interpretation, okay? It might be that God gathers in his remnant through the true Jews, the church, but I'll give you this anyway. Um, Romans 11, 25 through 26. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, that seems to be national Jews, until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So what Paul's opponents are saying in Romans 11 is, it seems like God has been unfaithful to save Jews. And Paul will basically hit that argument with several things. He'll say, that's not true. I'm a Jew, right? God has saved several Jews. The promise was never that he would save all Jews. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He's gonna save some Jews. That was always the promise. Additionally, Jesus is the true Jew, and those linked to him are Jewish. To quote St. Augustine, if you want to become a Jew, become a Christian, okay? But there also seems to be some sense here in which he might be saying that though many Jewish people do not accept Christ, there might be some time in the future where God softens their hearts and you see Jewish people trusting Christ, okay? That is a pretty common interpretation of Romans 11. So we're stuck with a a few things, right? We're stuck in between a... uh, Uh, a rock and a hard place in that we have some passages that say Jesus could come back soon. He could come back at any time. You have to always be ready. But then there are other passages that say all these things have to happen first so he can't come back at any time, okay? So what do we do? What do we do? Let me give you some possible solutions, okay? Let me give you some possible solutions. You can basically deny one of those two truths. I don't think that's the best way to approach it. Or there's some other solutions. So some will say Jesus could not actually come back at any time. Okay? Now this is not actually a wrong or heretical or bad position. What people that hold this position will say is this. His coming is impending but not imminent. Okay? What they'll say is when the Bible says things like I'm coming soon or coming quickly, the focus is not on time. Okay, the focus is not on at exactly what time. What does soon mean? How many hours till Jesus comes back? The focus is not on time. The focus is on uh, repentance. The focus is on theology. The focus is on you getting ready. So when the biblical authors say that Christ is coming back soon, you need to always be ready, they don't have to literally mean that he is coming back in a few hours. It could mean simply because his second coming is such a big deal and you don't know when it's happening, make sure that what happens soon is your repentance. What happens soon is your faith. That's one view. The problem with that view is I think it does kind of downplay all the language that would say, I'm coming soon. Uh, that all the language that would seem to say that there, is, there does seem to be some sort of time element. When Peter addresses this argument, he addresses it from a time perspective as we just saw. The second view is to say that Jesus could come back at any time because all these events have already taken place. This is what's called the preterist view, okay? So some would say that Jesus could come back at any time because all these events have already taken place. What they will say is all those things that I just said have to happen before Christ can come back have already happened. So in that sense, Christ could come back at any time. They will say the gospel has gone out to all nations, right? If you say, well, Zach, the gospel hasn't gone to all nations, I want you to remember the New Testament says that it has gone to the whole world multiple times. It says that it's gone to all nations and it's gone to the whole world. Once you have the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, and the gospel goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, 
The apostles are like, check, mission accomplished. The gospel going to the whole world means something like going to Gentiles, not just Jews. When you get to a great tribulation, they'll say that already occurred. That happened in 70 AD, where the Jews had to flee to the mountains as the Romans were desecrating the temple and destroying it, and they were killing people and crucifying people, etc. Okay? They killed so many Jews that they ran out of wood. They were crucifying so many people. False Christ and false prophets must work signs and wonders and teach false doctrine. That's been going on for 2,000 years. That's already happened. Signs will occur in the heavens. They will say that signs in the heavens in the Bible is always a symbol for significant world events. Big political shifts, people coming to power. Uh, when Roman emperors are born, they'll talk about a star in the heavens. By the way, the same thing happens with Christ. When he's born, there's a star, right, that leads to the manger, etc. A man of lawlessness will come. They'll say that already happened. The man of lawlessness was Nero or the Pope or Hitler, or any other figure in history. And many ethnic Jews will repent and believe in Jesus. Some Jews already know Jesus. We don't know the number on that. That might have already happened. By the way, that's probably just a reference to Christians in the church. So that's what some people will say. The problem with that view is, are we really willing to say that there has been this antichrist figure that has set himself up in the temple, gotten rid of every object of worship, and everybody massively flocks to him, etc.? Are we willing to say that already we've seen major signs in the heavens or something like that? There's a few problems with that view. The dispensationalists that we like to uh, poke fun of actually have a solution to this. How can the Bible be, how can it say in the Bible that Christ is coming soon, but also these things must happen? Well, there'll be two second comings of Christ, is what they will say. That, I don't think that's a good solution. I think that's a solution that causes more problems than it fixes, right? It's like if there's a spider in your, on your wall and you start shooting shotgun rounds through it, that's caused a bigger problem than the spider, Okay. And so, uh, and so what they will say is, well, what will happen is there's actually three comings of Christ. So he already came once. He's going to come a second time invisibly and secretly to suck up believers into the sky. Then all these things will happen. And then he'll really come back with like the varsity second coming, which is actually a third coming. Okay. Now, the benefit of their view is they have a way to fit all the biblical data in there. I don't think it's a helpful way, and I think they add another coming of Christ, so I think that's a bad thing. Uh, but what they're trying to say is he can come at any time for this first one, the rapture, but he cannot come until these other things happen for this other one. It's a way to hold both of these uh, things in tension. And then uh, what I will give you is what I think is the, uh, the correct view here, which is this. Because we don't know if these end times events have already happened or not, then we should be ready for Christ's return at any time, okay? I think this is a view that doesn't have the problems of the other views, but it allows us to hold the biblical evidence together in tension, okay? The Bible teaches Christ can come back at any time, and it teaches that these things must happen before Christ comes back. How do we hold those two things in tension? Here's how. We don't know if those other things have already happened or not. We never know that. When has the gospel gone to all nations? You could say, well, I think it's already gone. Or you could say, I'm not sure that it's gone to all nations, okay? When has there been a man of lawlessness? Is this a literal temple? The temple's destroyed. He takes a seat in it. What do we do with that, okay? Yes, I know you can say it's metaphorical, but sitting in a temple seems to be more literal language regardless of how many times the word is used. What do we do with that? What do we do with signs in the sky? Every time there have been major political shifts, has that already happened or not, right? And so we don't, we don't really know. That way you can be on your guard. Every day you can think, Christ might come back today because you don't know whether these things have already happened or not, okay? Wars and rumors of wars. How many times has that happened? A lot. Is there gonna be one bigger one? World War III? I don't know, right? And neither do you. I think that's the way to hold these things in tension. 
God is far more, let me stand up a little bit further so you see this is an important point. That's how you know it's important. God is far more concerned with you loving and trusting Christ and him finding you faithful when he returns than any of the details we care about. We care about stuff God doesn't care about. You don't believe me? Read the first part of Genesis. I would want to know how long it took God to create the world and how it happened and how, you know, how is there uh, plants growing when you gotta create the sun later and how, how do all these things happen? God does not care about giving us those details. He wants you to know that he alone is the creator, that you are designed to worship him and that you fell and messed it up so he had to fix it, okay? You get two chapters on the creation of everything. Everything we wanna know in science, the Bible doesn't tell us. When it comes to the end of the Bible, it doesn't tell us a lot of these things. When exactly, what exactly are these signs? What, uh, how should we think about these things exactly? That's not the point. God's concerns, God's ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. The thoughts he cares about are the big picture things. Do you know Christ, do you love him, do you watch out for false teaching, do you walk in holiness, etc.? Not all the little things we want to know, okay? Is 666 actually uh, you know, the monster energy drink with their little M or whatever, okay? Let me give you some examples, and then uh, I'm going to leave a little extra time for Q&A because I feel like there might be uh, extra Q&A uh, for this lesson today. Let me give you some examples of, uh, th- so when, when I say that we don't know whether or not these things have already happened, let me give you some examples of what I mean by that. Has the gospel been preached to all nations? Does this mean every single person or just nations generally or just Gentiles generally? Okay. It's interesting to me that the apostles will say both, that the gospel's gone to all nations, the gospel's gone out to the world, the whole world has heard about Christ. They say things like that, very big picture things, yet they're planting churches so that the gospel can keep going out to lost people. They have this weird tension there, okay? We have a tendency sometimes when we think the gospel must go to all nations that somehow like we as as humans somehow change the date of Jesus' return. If we would just work harder and reach people for Jesus, then Jesus would be up in heaven and he's like, oh man, way more people are saved. I gotta get down there. That's not how it works, okay? Uh, and so yes, be faithful. Yes, share the gospel. Yes, make disciples. Uh, but again, God does his work through you, not, the other, not, uh, not like goes by your timetable or something. Number two, has the quote unquote great tribulation already occurred? Was it what happened to the Jews in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed by the Romans? Which seems to be a lot of the language Jesus is using. He says this will happen in this generation and he says that uh, not one stone will be left on another and that these pagans will come in and desecrate the temple and you will have to flee to the mountains. That's exactly what happened to the Jews being destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Was it some type of martyrdom by Christians in some period of church history? Okay. Christians being martyred, Christians being killed. Is that the great tribulation? You know that in the 1900s, the 20th century, there were more Christian martyrs than all of church history before that combined. More Christians were killed in the 1900s. We don't think about that. We think Christians being killed in the second century, and that's pretty much it, okay? In the 1900s, especially in the Soviet Union, okay, there were more, and in the Middle East, there were, there were more Christians killed than all the other Christian martyrs from the 1800s and all the way back to the first century, Okay? Is that the great tribulation? That's when the most Christians have died? Is it in the early church where Nero is uh, tying Christians up in animal skins and having animals eat them alive in the Colosseum? Is it when he's uh, lighting them on fire and putting them up on stakes to be the light of the world at his garden parties? That all sounds pretty tribulation-y. Is it some future event? Is it that the world's gonna get worse and worse until uh, there's just some final last hurrah where Christians are just killed in mass? 
Is it just a general title for all suffering that Christians experience in the church age? You see, because we don't know that with certainty, we don't know if this great tribulation has already happened. We don't know if the gospel's gone to all nations, and we won't. We don't know if the great tribulation has happened, and we won't. So Christ could come back at any time, because maybe this is already done. Number three, have false Christs and false prophets appeared? Well, they certainly have, but how many have to come before this biblical prophecy is fulfilled? How many have to come before this biblical prophecy is fulfilled? There have been false Christs and false messiahs all the way back in the time of the New Testament. Paul has to warn them and say that if somebody preaches a Christ other than the one you received, and he rebukes them. In Galatians, he says that if somebody comes and gives you a new gospel that is not the one that the church has traditionally held, that comes from Satan. Okay, let them be anathema is the Greek word. It means damned. Okay, let them be damned by God is what he's saying. How many of those false teachers have to come before this prophecy is fulfilled? False teachers have to come. Hadn't that been happening for 2,000 years? Number four, have powerful signs in the heavens appeared? Okay, now what a lot of people will say, including Grudem, who, uh, who I like on some things and don't like on others, he'll say, well, this one probably hasn't happened because we don't see all these cosmological things. The problem is most of the time when the Bible talks about sign in the heavens, it is not literal. It is talking about major world events, major shifts in history. When kings are born, stars rise, when the devil's thrown down, the moon's turned to blood, that's imagery to say what's happening is earth shaking. It's big. God is doing it, not just uh, humanity, Right? Is it literal? If not, is it symbolic for major world events, which is how the language is used most often, especially in apocalyptic literature? Remember, uh, the Bible takes a lot of this imagery from our lesson on uh, apocalyptic literature, the, the things dealt with there. Then how do we know when major political events have happened? They happen a lot, exclamation point. Has the Antichrist come? Okay, Jeff talked about this last week. Was it Nero, as in the book of Revelation, or the Roman Empire? Is it someone like the Pope, like the reformers thought? Or was, is it Hitler? A lot of Christians thought it was Hitler. What about the fact that 1 John says many antichrists have come? Is there more than one? That stresses you out, you know? If you see one termite in your house, you're like, okay, there's one termite. But then when you find out you've got termites all in the walls, man, that's a bad day. Antichrist, just coming out of the walls, right? What do you do with that? There are many antichrists. What do we do with that, Okay. Number six, has Israel been saved in the Romans 11 sense? When will enough Jews be saved to fulfill this biblical prophecy? Is Israel, in quotes in Romans 11, a reference to spiritual Israel, i.e. the church, or to national Jews? Or does Paul go back and forth with his language and make it confusing what he's talking about? Who knows? Who knows? So what I want you to know, and the main point of this lesson is simply to say this. As a recap, and Jeff, if you want to go ahead and, and make your way up, we don't know when Christ will return as far as a date, the Bible's gonna say he could come back at any time, but there are these things that have to happen first. But because we don't know whether or not those things have happened, you should still be on your guard. You should still be aware. You should not let uh, him find you sleeping, okay? So I wanna end by just a quick word of encouragement about the second coming. All this can sound kind of technical and confusing. Here's why the Bible tells you about the second coming. To encourage you. To encourage you, okay? We see everything that's broken in the world. We see that there's sickness. We see that evil people reign. It seems like the more evil you are, the better life goes for you. Okay? It's always the Christians that get cancer. The evil people get to uh, live in their mansions and do whatever they want and sleep around, etc. It seems like there's evil men in power. There's abuse. There's racism. There is greed. There's scandal. There's murder. There's pedophilia. There's all these terrible things. We're anxious. We're depressed. We're struggling. We're mad. We've got family issues. Here's the benefit of the second coming. One day, 
Jesus will make everything that's sad untrue. One day Jesus will come and he will make everything that's sad untrue. He will come back and everything that's bad, he will fix. It's going to happen. It's not, it's not an if, he's gonna come back, it's when. And he is going to fix everything that's broken. Everything you struggle with, everything you're afraid of, everything that plagues you, everything that you hate in the world that is evil will one day be no more and there is only joy, bliss, worship before, as you worship before your God for you for all eternity. So take heart. That's why we're told about the second coming. It's meant to encourage us. We're depressed, we're stressed, we deal with so many issues, we're frustrated, we're sick, we have bad marriage problems, problems with our kids, we see all the evil in the world, just turn on the news, it's so depressing. One day Christ will come and he will fix all that and everything will be fine. That's the encouragement the Bible gives us. That's why it tells us about the second coming. All the rest is details. All the rest is details. So, Jeffrey, I've given us an extra five minutes of uh, Q&A in case somebody wants to ask a, a juicy, a juicy spicy, a juicy question. What do you got? Okay, so uh, a few questions. Uh, first, just wanted to kind of address uh, there's something about this particular topic, not just when will Christ return, but eschatology in general, that just tends to stress out evangelicals. And so for some reason we've made this, so if you think of the uh, doctrine in concentric circles, uh, and you have the things that are of primary importance, uh, and then you have secondary importance, and then you have kind of third level tertiary importance, and, uh, and a lot of these eschatological things are really in the third category, and yet for whatever reason, just here in America, we've kind of made it central, and so some of you might be feeling angst, anxiety, stress as we talk about these kind of things, because it's kind of deconstructing, you maybe you went to a church that said, if they don't teach a pre-tribulational rapture, they don't love Jesus, and they don't love the Bible, and those kind of things, and so I uh, just want to continue, as we do every week, just to tell you, if this is causing you any sort of pain or discomfort or whatever it might be, please come and chat with us. Uh, a little question that you text in is probably not going to suffice to actually uh, calm you and soothe you and help you understand that we love you, we love Jesus, we love the Bible, all those kinds of things. So with that being said, here are a few questions. Could statements, first question, could statements about coming soon, you talked about this a little bit, refer to 70 AD when God judged the Jewish nation? For rejecting the Messiah and a related question, so does partial preterism help solve the problems? Can I just Please. explain preterism and then I'll turn it over to you. Um, so preterism we talked about before. Preterism is a Latin term that means that which is past, the things that are past. And, uh, and so according to, to preterism, a lot of the eschatological prophecies and those kinds of things that you read in scripture were already accomplished, typically in the first century, typically with the destruction of the, uh, the, the temple in 70 AD when, the, when Rome came in and just destroyed uh, Jerusalem. And, uh, and so you have two different forms of preterism. You have partial preterism that says a lot of these prophecies are already fulfilled. And then you have full preterism. And, uh, and so we've talked before about how full preterism is not a Christian option. You can be a partial preterist and you can be a member of uh, our church. You can be a member of the church universal. You cannot be a full preterist because what full preterists believe is that Jesus has already returned. It was just a spiritual return or something uh, like that. So there's nothing in the future yet to come in terms of uh, prophetic hope or, or eschatological expectation or anything like that. And so those are the difference uh, between partial and full preterism. And so does partial preterism help uh, in, in regards to understanding uh, the importance, the significance of 70 AD? You want to give some more thoughts on that? Yes. Yeah, so there is a, 
a theological view that basically says, how do we hold these things in tension, that Christ could come back soon and that he's coming back later? And uh, the idea is that there's a sense in which he came back to judge the temple in 70 AD. He cleanses it once with a whip, he cleanses it a second time with his coming, if you want to say it that way. Um, that is a, a legitimate evangelical option. Again, I think it causes more problems, though, than it solves. You now have, again, two second comings of Christ. When Christ is described as coming in the Bible, it is visible, it is bodily, he resurrects people, he stays there, he does all the stuff. He doesn't just come through judgment and not really come as he's up in heaven and that's it. And so I think it changes the meaning of the second coming. Additionally, I think this is interesting, none of the early church fathers referred to that as a second coming. None of them. That idea comes up later in church history. They would all say the second coming is a one-time event that happens and it's clear and it's done and world history is over. Uh, they, uh, none of them take it to mean that Jesus has actually come and we should read the prophecies that way uh, in 70 AD, which causes me some, some concern with that, uh, uh, with that option. But it's not like a wrong or heretical view, but I think it makes one of the, the same mistake as the dispensational view, which is where you have to start chopping up the comings of Christ and making them not really mean what the text seems to say they mean, which is visible, bodily, once for all, it's loud, there's a shout, it's clear, people are resurrected, Jesus reigns, and it's over. And so, uh, but if you want to add any clarifiers for that. Yeah, just, just so, so there's, if you think about it as kind of, there's two ditches that you want to avoid. Oh, Mr. Rogers, Zach. I like that. Getting comfortable. Well, it's a kinder, softer Zach. Yeah, that's what, I like that's, that's what, what we need. That's what the people need. That's what we need. Uh, so if you think of the, there, there are these two ditches that you want to avoid. One is to see no significance whatsoever to what happens in 70 AD. The other one is to put all of the weight of eschatological prophetic expectation on 70 AD, as if that, that exhausts the entire prophetic uh, spectrum. And, uh, and so, does 70 AD explain some of the passages in Scripture and some of the expectations and some of the prophecies? Absolutely. If you deny that, I think that you are completely wrong uh, on that particular thing. But is that uh, what we're talking about when we talk about the, the second coming of Christ? No. And so, uh, should you read some of the prophecies of Scripture through a preteristic sort of lens? Yes. Should you view the second coming of Christ through a preteristic sort of lens? No. If that, uh, if that helps. So... Um, next question. The Bible says that it will be like the days of Noah when Christ returns and there seems to be some sort of global apostasy. Does this mean that there will be no true believers left on earth? I'll give an initial thought and then turn it over to you. So if you remember, even in the days of Noah, uh, there are some believers, right? Noah. There's Noah, <laughs> all right? And uh, there's seven other people who are somewhat faithful, uh, eight people total on the, uh, on the ark. And so uh, I don't think the point there is that there's going to be no believers, but I think we should recognize if you grew up thinking the, ma the vast majority of people are Christians, I don't think you have a very good understanding of what Christians really are. And, uh, and so Christianity is not something that is merely something you confess with your mouth. It is a heart change. You are regenerate. You are born again. You love the king. You love the kingdom. Those kinds of things. The vast majority of people that you know are probably not actually Christians, even though they might call themselves uh, a Christian. And, uh, and so uh, although I do think that when Christ returns, the overwhelming majority of people will not be Christians, unless postmillennialism is true, in which case uh, we'll talk about that when we talk about millennial theories. I don't think that's, that, that's necessarily the case. I think that the uh, overwhelming majority of people are not going to be regenerate, are not going to be Christians, but that doesn't mean that there will be no true believers or uh, anything like that. Just like the, in Noah's days, there were some believers, but the overwhelming majority of the world was corrupt and, uh, and sinful. More thoughts on that? 
Uh, yeah, no, I think that's good. Uh, John Calvin says in his institutes that uh, those that are actually true Christians are probably about one out of a hundred that actually, and he's writing in a uh, place where it's a Christian nation. So he's saying about one out of a hundred of those that actually claim to know Christ really know Christ. Now that's an arbitrary number, but, uh, but let that haunt you, especially if you live in the South and you just assume everybody's a Christian. It's being regenerate that is a huge life change, something God does to you that is salvation, not whether you prayed a prayer or just confessed it with your mouth, something like that. Uh, yeah, I think so. I'm, I disciple a group of guys, and uh, once a year I pick different guys, and one of the things they have to read is some church history stuff, and we just had a conversation of the church in the Middle Ages, and uh, some of them were asking, are there true believers in the Middle Ages? And the answer is yes. Christ has always had a remnant. He's always been faithful. He promises that the gates of Hades will never overcome his church. So throughout all church history, there has always been, and there will continue to be, there will be faithful believers. Now, can the church become more or less pure? Sure. There are times in church history where there's there's some believers, but a lot of people that claim to be Christians are not. There are other times in church history where more people that claim to be Christians really are, but there is this unbroken line. There's, if you say that there's ever been a time in church history where there has been no true church, Jesus has allowed his bride to die. He has not presented her without spot and wrinkle and blemish, okay? Because he is faithful, he has always had true believers, but that number can shift throughout church history, right? In the high Middle Ages, there's a lot of corruption in the church, though there are people that really love Jesus and hold to correct doctrine. In the Reformation, I think things get better, obviously, because I'm a Protestant. My Catholic friends don't agree with me. They think that that was the worst thing that happened to the church, right? And so, but the point is, what we both agree on is that there are true Christians, and the same thing is true in the future. There will be times where more people abandon the faith. The Bible will talk about the love of some will grow cold, and then there are other times where the faith is flourishing, and it varies depending on where you are. I think in America, you're seeing a lot of people, a lot of major Christian leaders recently in the news just kind of forsake their faith. But in places like China, where there's more persecution, the church is flourishing. South America, especially the charismatic church, is flourishing. In Africa, the church is flourishing. So we have a tendency to think things are getting worse in America, therefore they're getting worse everywhere. And that's not the right way, I think, to view it. So. Um, this is a good clarifying uh, question. What to do? So you mentioned passages that talk about how we, we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know when to expect him. But there also seems to be this, this uh, kind of nuance in certain passages that say we're not surprised. Um, and, uh, and so just a, a passage here. It's, it's from one of the Th- Thessalonians. I don't, it wasn't uh, written down in the thing. But uh, it says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, uh, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the uh, the darkness. And so, um, how do we deal with that sort of tension between the Bible saying we don't know the hour, the uh, the day, we don't know when to expect, but it also seems to say, but we Christians are not of the darkness, so we do kind of know. And so, my first sort of thought, and then I'll turn it over to you, would be uh, there is a sense in which what we don't know is when Christ will actually return, where we, uh, as Christians, are not to be surprised is the fact that he is going to return. We know there is going to be a thief. We don't know when the thief is going to come. Not that Jesus is a thief, but uh, we know that there is going to be a return of Christ. That is where the, uh, the world is unaware. And, uh, and so the difference there is not between uh, the timing. The difference is uh, between the reality of Jesus' return versus his not return. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think, so when I was a kid, I would read these passages that would say, don't let Jesus find you sleeping. And I was like, but, I, but I'm, okay, I'm going to stay up. 
I'm gonna stay up tonight, I'm gonna stay up a little later, I don't want Jesus to find me sleeping. And I thought it was like literal sleep. What it's meaning is spiritually sleeping in the sense of not walking in faithfulness and holiness. When you understand that that's the main thing being talked about, it makes sense to say when it comes to time, we don't know when it is, but we do know that it's coming in the sense that we're ready for it and we're walking in righteousness and it doesn't surprise us because that is our hope. And so I think it's important to have those nuances. I mean, even the one you just mentioned, which is good, we have a tendency to draw analogies in the wrong place. When it says Jesus is a thief, that doesn't mean he wears like this shady jacket and is like selling watches on the corner. It means, how is he like a thief? And that he comes unexpectedly. And the parable of uh, this, this widow that keeps demanding justice and the judge is like, oh, this widow is annoying me. The idea is not that you annoy God with your prayers, it's that she's persistent. So you have to draw the analogy at the right place. And so I think the analogy of saying that we do know and we are ready means we're spiritually ready. It doesn't matter when he comes, time-wise, because I'm ready when he gets here. I think that's the idea. Last question. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure the, uh, the context of what brought up this question, but I wanted to, to mention it because it did get sent in. Shouldn't signs and wonders be global and overt and not only something that uh, only a certain nation or group of people would be aware of? And so I would say it seems like it. So more on that. Yeah, I mean, here's what's, here's what's really weird about all this. The signs and wonder, let's say they're literal signs in the sky. What do you do if you live on the other side of the world? How are you going to see Christ's second coming if he comes back to Jerusalem and you're like in Texas? I don't know how to understand. Let's say that they're not literal signs. Let's say that they're big catastrophic world events. You know about those things. The whole world knows when we go to war with, uh, uh, you know, with Germany and, uh, you know, the, during World War II or something like that. So could they be worldwide cataclysmic events? Sure. Could they be some sort of signs? Yes, but then I don't know how you see them when you're not looking at those same stars from your vantage point. Uh, I don't know how that works. So again, I think that's where this, the, the focus is on imagery. Uh, not the literalness of it. However, uh, I agree with you. I do think it's talking about somehow it's sort of global, right? So it's some sort of, if, if the great tribulation has not occurred, it would probably be some sort of global tribulation, not just in America. If there is one future antichrist figure coming, and I'm not sure that there is, I think I stand there, uh, but I'm not sure. I think everybody will know about it. They, he, cl- he proclaims kind of worldwide dominion. And so yes, I do think that it's global. I just don't know what that means for things that you can't see globally. <laughs> That's what I don't know. Yeah, so just in, in conclusion, uh, if your theology leads you to a place where you think Jesus can't come back because these things haven't happened, that's probably not a very good thing. Uh, if your theology says that Jesus has already come back because these things have already happened, that's probably not a good thing. And, uh, and so hopefully this is a helpful lesson to just kind of wrestle uh, with that and uh, your own expectations. Uh, next week we'll talk about how will Christ return, is that correct? How? And the great Tim Hollis will be teaching. So mm. I think he's doing it all by song. The great so power. Be great. So, all right. Zach, you want to pray? Sure. Let's pray. <clears throat> Almighty God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And uh, we thank you for this text. I pray that uh, you might give us greater insight into this, not from some sort of uh, magical revelation or something, but rather that we would better understand your word, that you would help us lay aside our presuppositions and our limitations and our sin. And uh, we thank you and uh, pray for Christ to come back. We pray that uh, it would be soon, soon from our perspective. We thank you that we know it's going to happen, that we have a hope, whether we die before it happens or whether we're here when it happens, that uh, the story ends well for believers. So I pray for anybody in here who might not know Christ, who might have just been a good church kid their whole life or might be uh, resting in what they do or don't do to merit your favor, that they would lay that down and they would just put their hope in the coming Christ. That, there is, uh, that you have appointed someone to judge the living and the dead. 
And that person is Christ, to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given uh, because he is the eternal God. And so I pray that you would uh, be with us, that you would bless us, that you would help us look forward to that day. I confess in my own heart that I don't look forward to it. I'm kind of scared. I kind of don't want Christ to come back. I've got things I want to do. I've uh, got issues I'm dealing with. I'm scared. And so I confess that in my own heart a lot of times I'm, I'm not excited about that. So would you help us? We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.